Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hey, everybody. It is book club night. We got a lot of stuff on the horizon before we jump into the conversation with Diana, which is going to be awesome. Good to see you, Diana. Uh, Hey, everybody. Going to be a great night tonight. Uh, And there are just a few things that are on the horizon, though. Um, we've got morning prayer the first of each month, the first day of each month. Uh, and this August 1st, this next one is going to be a little later. It's going to be at noon because uh, the good news is our special guest and dear friend, uh, Michael McBride, Pastor Michael McBride, will be uh, joining us for morning prayer. So we're trying not to get him up at 6 a.m., but 9 a.m. So that's he's on the West Coast. So, But mark your calendar. It's going to be a power-packed morning of prayer and conversation with uh, uh, Mike McBride. So that's August 1st. Uh, we've got uh, book club next month is going to be, drum roll, uh, it's going to be, be Becoming Rooted by Randy Woodley. We've had Randy on a couple of different things, his wife, Edith, but uh, he's got this new book that's so beautiful and it's got readings throughout the year. Um, that's going to be our book next month. And uh, in case you get tired of me, Lisa Sharon Harper is going to be uh, co-hosting or hosting that conversation with Randy. Uh, and so it's going to be awesome. So you can go ahead and grab Becoming Rooted and, uh, and start reading it with us. So that's, that's uh, on the horizon. And then finally, we're doing a little... Um, push this month for uh, the summer book clubs. We got, we've been doing all these great readings and this is actually Diana's other hat. This is our segue here is that she um, is gifted in many ways, but one of the ways she's serving the red letter Christians movement is these creative ideas around uh, development, but we don't like to just be doing fundraising. We like to like find fun, creative ways to give and receive. And so what we're doing right now is if you give $25 anytime before the end of July, then you, you register to win five really great books. Well, I feel like a little proud to that because one of them is our book, Beating Guns. But there, there's four I can be really excited about and still feel uh, like I'm not being self-promoting. But one of them is Diana's book, Waging Peace, which we're talking about tonight. Uh, and then we've got Jackie Lewis's book, Fierce Love, uh, Sharon's books on there, Reverend Sharon, for such a time as this. And I'm missing one. What is it? Uh, and then Beating Guns. And um, there's one other really great one. What is it, Diana? Um, I forgot one. Man. <laughs> Reverend Sharon's, You're Beating Guns, Waging Peace. Jackie Lewis's. We cried justice. Liz Theo Harris's yes. book. Yes. So you get all five of those or ah. you, you register for the, the little uh, giveaway. So, um, 
but you know, and, and if you don't have money to give, like just please join uh, our newsletter, our wake ups, because we are building a movement and our country is desperately in need of revival and renewal. And we've got to counter this poisonous distortion of Christianity that's trying to camouflage itself as this uh, nationalism. And uh, uh, it's, it's such a threat as we see on January 6th, but also for those of us that love Jesus, this is a really contorted uh, version of our faith. And a lot of people are turned off by it. It does a lot of damage to the gospel. So we're going to talk about all, all that. All that's related to our conversation tonight. So thanks for joining us. Uh, this book club is around Diana's wonderful book, Waging Peace. And it's a memoir, but it's more than a memoir. It's really her story uh, of taking her faith seriously um, and, and also in light of the war in Iraq where she was a military service member. And so I, I want to just give you a brief intro for those of you that you know might not have uh, read the book yet, but please get it, Waging Peace. Um, Diana is, so check this out. I'm going to, if I get anything wrong, you just tell me, because I'm going a little informal off the cuff here, Diana, because we're friends. But she's not only been working for Red Letter Christians for a couple of years now, a few years now, um, but she is also um, writing and speaking and training people. This is really her passion in peacemaking. Um, and she became a military service member. Both your parents were as well, right? And so this is was a very natural transition for you. And then you were trained as a medic, but also I, I just recently uh, learned or relearned that you were a sharpshooter too. So um, you're balancing all this. You went into uh, to the war in Iraq and so many questions surface in that. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. But it really was about how you stay faithful to your love and discipleship of Jesus and trying to balance that with um, uh, your military service. And so you've written so beautifully about that. Thanks for doing all this. It's kind of weird to be too formal, but it's good to be together. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I really I really wrote, wrote the book for a lot of reasons, but I think it's because I saw so much of the places that I was raised. And it's not until you go, you, you know, you come to that crisis of a place that you realize how much that you haven't actually even gotten to live out your faith. You know, you've been given these tiny little threads, but you haven't seen how big and how beautiful your faith is. Sometimes you've been given a little bit of your culture, but you haven't actually been given the whole shebang. So um, Shane, thank you so much for, um, for being here and for letting yeah. me be here with you tonight. Thank you. And, and you, go, you go into a lot of this in your book, but I never want to assume that everybody listening has read it. So tell us a little bit about like your, your own like coming of faith, how you fell in love with Jesus and, you know, a little bit about your, your upbringing, you know, and being raised in a military family and um, you know, how you, how you sort of began that journey before we get to your service in Iraq, in, in, in Iraq. Yeah. And, and truly I grew up in, I think, I mean, I'm not going to assume, but by the numbers, 
um, in the U.S. I think at the last Gallup poll, they would say like, you know, in the 70 percent Americans self-identify as Christians. You know, so I grew up in a small rural town in northern Minnesota um, in a little little Baptist church. And both of my parents, I'm actually both of my parents joined the military. And I think as I've grown up, I realized that I think that it was um, much more acceptable to be patriotic than it was to be poor. (laughs) And so I think in general, um, I'm a third generation army veteran. So I think that was kind of where a lot of people from rural small towns, the opportunity that you did when you came out of high school was to join the military. Um, Mm. Most people from my family's families uh, weren't going to college, not because they didn't want to, but because they didn't have the means. Um, So they went to the military to get a skill and to really make their way in the world. And so that's what um, my family did. And so that's what I knew how to do. So when I wanted to go to college, uh, my, my father's father and my mom and my dad, they all had gone to the military. Yeah, that's what I did. And so I grew up in a little country Baptist church with about 50 people all loved God. And when, when the altar call came, I just knew that I wanted what they had. Um, and they loved me and I loved them. And I got baptized in a little, little, uh, country lake and we had potato salad and, and some meatloaf after that. I mean, it was a really pretty idyllic thing that I grew up in. And, but you know, when you're, when you're a kid, you think when you're 23, you don't think that you're a kid. You think you're an adult. Um, But we're all old enough here to realize that that you're pretty much handed a lot of your beliefs. You haven't really had a chance to test them or try them. And I didn't really know anybody who was different than me. Everybody I knew in the pew thought the same things I did, believed the same things I did, voted the same way I did. And we pretty much thought that, you know, if, the church down the street, you know, they weren't doing it right because they weren't sitting in the pew with us. Anybody who really wasn't in our building wasn't quite doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was 23, I got that's when um, 9-11 happened. Well, about a year beforehand, 9-11 had happened. I was sitting in nursing school. I'd gone to basic training, gotten my way to go to college and 9-11 happened. And I knew that my life was going to change. Because I was in the military. Yeah. Even though I was just a week a weekend warrior, um, something in me knew this was going to be a life changer. And so I had gotten, I ended up being deployed as a combat medic to um to the Iraq war. And mm-hmm. that's when everything changed. Because although I had believed that in all these things and the people who loved me and raised me believed all these things. Soldiers did hard things. You know, sometimes soldiers had to take a life to save a life. Um, When I actually met the people that I was told were my enemies, like it just wasn't holding up because deep down I knew I'm like, I knew God was love. I had been taught that stuff, you know? And I want to talk about that. You know, some of the families that you met that really transformed, um, I mean, they were so formative for you in your combat and in your faith. But um, before we get to that, though, I mean, you were trained as a sharpshooter. Like, are there other were there times before you got to combat where 
some of those collisions between God, God and country, you know, loving your enemies and preparing to kill them? Like, were there, were there places that you started to feel some dissonance with that? Or, or like, like, did this kind of really just hit once you got to Iraq? Well, because going to basic training, uh, nobody tells you about that stuff. And I even had two parents who had been in basic training. And my mom, when my mom had went, um, women weren't even allowed in the military. It was called the Women's Army Corps. So it was segregated. They didn't even allow women. And I was one of the first uh, classes that even had it. So when I was in in basic training, the first two weeks is a weapons training. So Mm -hmm. for two weeks, all you do is shoot. And at the end of two weeks, 12-hour days, if you do a qualifications test, and if you can't pass, if you can't shoot to kill center mass dead on, they kick you out. Mm. And so doing all of that weapons training, like I remember feeling like, you know, like this isn't like this isn't me because all of the targets were human targets and you had to you had to shoot you know, center mass and you had to change it for like the wind and you had to change it for the gradation of the, you know, like we were doing this all day, every day. And I remember like, it just didn't feel right, but I was also really scared to fail because like drill sergeants, and this was a real bad thing to fail. And then we had, um, hand to hand combat and it was pugil sticks. And I remember like, I'm, you can't tell, but I'm a five foot tall person and they were lining us up with, another person who is generally our same size. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not much of a fighter. And I remember being like, I don't know about this. I remember, you know, like, how do you ever, I mean, how, how do you brainwash somebody to get to the point where they will harm another person point blank in a Mm. millisecond? Mm. I mean, that is, the point of basic training to get you to the point where you obey an order without a second thought. Mm. And I remember, but it's all through fear. You make someone more afraid of you than anybody else. And that's what drill surgeons do. And so we're all in this together, you know, all of our other fellow soldiers, like we were just scared enough to do whatever it took. I remember he grabbed me and he grabbed me by, by my face. And he was like, if you don't hurt her, I'm going to hurt you. And I was like, okay, (laughs) like you just get indoctrinated into this thing of fear. And if you don't, if you don't do something, something's going to happen to you. And I do remember even before that, um, I had, you know, there, there were kids from all across the U S tough kids. I came from Northern Minnesota, naive and ignorant, but not tough. And there were kids from inner cities who, um, they were there because their families needed money. Like they had drive-bys, they had stuff I'd never heard of. And yet I remember seeing them get scared. I remember them get pushed so hard. They were taking off their uniforms, Mm, mm. you know? And I was like, this is this culture of fear and physical violence. And it all just rolled downhill. If you hurt one person, the rest of us would fall in line because we're so scared of that. And so I remember having that, like, this is not, this is not me, Mm. but I was here and I was going to survive. 
And so I do remember feeling those things come up. And the other person I remember, the only other person later in life who I remember saying the same thing that I had in my thought, you know, but I was 18 and scared was Vincent Harding, who was one of Martin Luther King's main like colleagues. And I remember him saying the same thing. He was an inner city kid signed up. He's like, I was loving it. I was outside. I was doing my weapons training. I was really great at it. He's like, but he had this one thought of like, wait a second. Yeah, I'm really good at this sharpshooter training, but I think God said not to kill. And he remembers being like, I'm here, but I'm getting out of here. And then when he came back, he actually left his church and became a Mennonite because he knew this is not for me. Like I cannot kill. So I remember Vincent Harding That's said the so thing. Powerful. It is in every church I've ever spoken at veterans come up to me after they're like, I've had the same experience about kind of hearing as they're doing their training. Like this is, this is not for me because I know God's a God of love. He's like, but I don't tell anybody at my church cause I don't want to rustle any feathers, but I know I had to yeah. say like, the spirit of God will, as you're doing it, even if you kind of, you know, like there's things that are okay about it. A lot of people have the same experience of something just isn't, isn't okay. That's, that's so powerful. And I I love the story of Vincent Harding. So Dr. Harding came to Philly. We got (laughs) to spend some time together. Yeah. I got to know him pretty well, actually. And, um, such a powerful story. I mean, because he's seen so he had seen so oh. much violence, you know, uh, in, in all its different manifestations, and then just became this force, you know, for peace with like Dr. King. And, you know, we, we you were there, we read the uh, famous Riverside speech where, uh, entitled Beyond Vietnam. And Dr. Harding um, was sort of the covert ops on that, as I understand. He helped craft that language of the three, the, the triplets of evil, you know, racism, materialism, and militarism. And- he's one of my heroes, Vincent Harding, because he's all about love. He's like the originator of that whole movement was love. Well, I know he's smiling down on you. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And, and now, so when, you know, as I think of, um, the stories that I've heard you tell and that you tell in the book, there's one of them of uh, one of the other soldiers who had um, decided, yeah, I want you to tell the story of one of the other soldiers that kind of opened your own um, conscience as to what it could look like to be an objector of war or to continue to try to serve there and get to know families, but still refuse to kill even though you're in one of the most dangerous, you know, war zones in the world. Yeah. So tell us a little of that story. So I'm going to tell you the story, but a little like backstory. And then why I have so much hope as a peacemaker is because I don't think anybody's a good person or a bad person. I think we're all products of the bubbles we're raised in. So I was raised in a great people, lovely people, but I was only given a small amount of invitation. So Fast forward, I'm in this, I'm in Iraq. Um, yes, I do. Uh, I'm in Iraq and I, um, I've never heard the term conscientious objector, which only tells you about the, the culture I'm raised in that I've never heard the term. I didn't even know what it was. So one of the stories that I tell in my book, so And I'm also a Baptist and I've never, ever heard a preacher preach 
about peace other than uh, Christmas time. When you hear the verse about Jesus being announced as, you know, wonderful counselor, wonderful, what are, and then the Prince of Peace. Like I've never heard peace being mentioned outside of Christmas time. And, um, and I've never heard Jesus talked about ever as like nonviolence. I've never heard this mentioned in church. So anyways, fast forward, I am now in, in the war. Anyways, it's in the middle of the night and I'm a combat medic. So I take care of my entire um, company, which is like a hundred soldiers. Anyways, I'm asleep. It's in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden I'm in my tent and I get this call. All of a sudden somebody opens up the tent flap and yells medic. And then it gets bounced back to me. Someone is like medic, medic. And they yell. And I'm like, this is not good. Like nobody yells for a medic in the middle of the night unless it's bad. And so I get on my bag because I just have this backpack and I get up and they're like, they want you. And so I come out, it's in the middle of the night in the desert and it's just ink black. And I come out and they're like, they're like, somebody's hurt and they want you. And so I go out and I find there is one of my soldiers from my company. And I look over and um and the name is changed just to perfect to like keep his identity private um so i just use his name as sergeant olson because that's a very common name but i walk in to like headquarters it's a middle of night and i see sergeant olson sitting there and there's two bright um there's two bright bandages on his wrist and you can see that there's there's blood seeping through so Sergeant Olson had tried to slit his wrists because he had tried to commit suicide. And so they're like, take Sergeant Olson over to the clinic and take care of him and make sure, bring him to the doctor and try to get him stitched up. Mm. And my heart just broke because I knew that he must have felt the greatest amount of despair any human being can feel. If only for a moment, he felt that kind of despair to harm himself. And I also knew at this moment, the military was not going to look kindly on him. Mm-hmm. They were going to take his rank from him. And so I checked his bandages and, and I took him with me to the clinic, knowing like this, this would probably end his career. And he was a good person, you know, and this was, he should have been taken care of, mm-hmm. not not hurt because he was hurting Mm. because Mm. war is hard and violence hurts people no matter what. So he just silent. Before we go, Oh, go finish. No, you can keep going. I was just going to say, you know, as I hear that, I'm also reminded, you know, in the research that we did for our beating guns book, that the number one cause of death of military service members is not combat but it's suicide. Uh, We've got more military service members and veterans, you know, dying from their own guns than from uh, enemy combatant guns. And and the suicide rates um, almost one an hour. So this, you know, this is a crisis, you know, for, for all of us. Right. And it, and it's significant. Um, And it's one that we can acknowledge 
and not just say thank you, but acknowledge that the military culture harms military people. And I thought that it was only people who had been deployed that were really committing suicide. And it's not like the military culture is one that causes harm to military members, Mm -hmm. Um, which I thought was that that flipped my thinking on its head. I thought it was only people who were deployed who were exposed to violence, but really the military culture is harmful to military members, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense after being in it. Um, but I had taken him over to the clinic and then brought him in to see a, see a doctor to stitch him up. And as I was sitting there in the middle of the night, two in the morning, uh, the tent flap was sitting there and all of a sudden this uh, soldier was sitting next to me and he just started talking to me and he was like, oh, you must be a conscious rejecter, right? Because you're a medic. A lot of medics mm-hmm. are. And I remember thinking like, what is a conscientious objector? But the word conscience made me think it must be something with a conscience, you know? And he started telling me, He was like, oh, man, he's like, I'm not a conscience objector. He's like, but I love Jesus. He's like, he's like, I'm a truck driver, which a truck driver is one of the most dangerous jobs in the war. Driving a truck up and down the main supply route was they used to get blown up by IEDs all the time. Most dangerous job in the war. He's like, I'm a truck driver. He's like, but I love Jesus. He's like, I got a wife and two kids back home. He's like, but. He's like, but I've taken the bullets out of my weapon. He's like, because I would rather go to heaven and ever take the chance away from somebody else to know God. Mm-hmm. And it, when he said that, it was just like that, like electricity that just hits you. You know that where they're like, you know, the guys were walking with Jesus that just like burned in their heart. Like they didn't know what was going on, but they knew something was happening. And that's when I just knew I was like, it's true. Like what he had was the freedom to like give your life away and act like heaven was real that I had never heard before. Like I didn't know a single person, which maybe just said something about me and the people I knew, but he had a freedom to give his life away instead of take a life. And that was the kind of faith that I had been missing and that I'd wanted. And after I met him, I went back to my tent that night Hmm. And felt like I wanted that same kind of freedom too. And so I took the bullets out of my magazine, clinked them. And like, it felt like that was the freedom I was missing. And I woke up the next day and like, didn't have that same climb fear in my belly Mm. that I did every other day that I woke up in the war. And like, it changed. It changed how how I got to show up in the war. Like it didn't change. I wasn't scared of still getting killed or raped or tortured, but it changed how I chose to show up in the war. And that was the faith and the freedom that, that he had. That made me a peacemaker. Yeah. Heck yeah. It reminds me, you know, of the, the, so many of the, the sermons and writings of the early Christians when they, say things like uh, for Christ we can die but we cannot kill you know we 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 um can't hold the cross in one hand and a weapon in the other that there there comes this point where um we can't serve two masters and and we often feel that conflict that if you're going to be a a faithful 
disciple of Jesus, you may not be a good combat soldier. Like the, these things feel like they, they butt heads. Right. And you had that happen a few other times. I know you, you had uh, one particular situation that you uh, shared that where, where you were given orders that really um, caused that same collision in your soul. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard other veterans and soldiers give the language of moral injury, right? That there's an injury of our conscience or moral injury that we experience. It's not just about the physical injuries, but sometimes you're asked to do things that, that you carry that back with you. Um, and, and I think that's why we see so many of our veterans and uh, former service members, current service members, even that are, are haunted by the, the things that they, they did or were ordered to do. So um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I, you, do you have another question? I didn't well, have another thing I was going to say. I, I, well, I think when, you know, you were, weren't, weren't you uh, in a position where you were asked to like keep moving over um, a, a child, right? right? That's kind of what I was thinking of. I don't know how much of that story you want to tell, but it was, it's very uh, poignant. I mean, that collision that you feel, I mean, some things seem like they're a little blurrier, but that was one of those that you just go. Yeah. So that was the very, that was the very first, that was like the first one that when, mm -hmm. um, when I first got into country, it was only, <clears throat> it was only like a week. Like we had just, just mm -hmm. came into the country and then we were just waiting to, uh, to really move in. I mean, they call it like convoying into enemy territory, but we had just gotten off the plane. We had just gotten together and then um, we were getting ready to really uh, roll in across the line because we had flown into Kuwait and we were going into Iraq the next mm. day. And so we were getting our, our, our convoy orders ready. And then and the night before, you know, normally like it's always the same. Like er we do everything the same. Like it's so, you know, the military is if anything consistent. And so everything is done the same way. And so we didn't really expect anything different because we do train like we fight. But that night at the very end, um, it was like eight o'clock at night and we were gonna roll out at like 6 a.m. the next morning. And at the very end, the sergeant said, you know, it's an enemy tactic that they push little Iraqi children in front of American trucks, the convoys, in order to slow down the truck and then to attack American soldiers at the rear. He's like, I hope you understand your duty to keep the trucks rolling at all costs tomorrow. Mm. He's like, and if you aren't able to do your duty, he's like, stand up now and identify yourself. <laughs> and like, all of a sudden, you know, it was like hot. It was at the very end of the briefing. And all of a sudden, I, like, it just dawned on me. I'm like, what he was asking us to do. And like, before I could really decide if I, I was, I was going to, you know, stand up as a lone female soldier in combat, if I was going to stand up and like, identify myself and say, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, he just yelled, dismissed. You know, and then everybody stood up and like walked out of the tent. But I remember going back to my tent and laying down my cot and just wrestling because, you know, like my my faith, my church, my like my beliefs, 
um, as a soldier, like I, everything I knew, like believed in this, you know, that sometimes you have to take life to save a life and you do hard things. And, um, my faith really said it was okay to kill because we were mm. Americans and the military does no wrong. And as long as it's not us, you know, like there's always these provisos, you know, somehow everything was always okay. As long as we had the American flag on the side of it, you know, we don't really question our country much at all. Mm. Um, but I remember just wrestling in my cot and, you know, that really, like, pathetic thing, prayer that you do where you're just, like, it's just that, like, oh, God, oh, God, help. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, I just knew between me and even though I believed this, like, I, it was just pushing back. I'm like, yeah. I can't do this. Like, between me and God, like, I can't do it. Even though, like, I have no choice. I'm here. I'm wearing the uniform. But I remember just praying the most, like, pathetic little, like, prayer with like tears streaking down, you know, cause I had army across my chest, you know, like I'm in a war, but I remember praying that and all of a sudden I just heard the, like the voice that I just always knew since I was a kid that this was like, not me. And I just heard this voice come out of the darkness mm. and it was like, Diana, I love them too. Mm. And just like lightning, all the pressure broke. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I was like, I know you do, (laughs) you know, God loves them too, even though I'm told they're my enemy and this is, you know, I'm supposed to love God is love versus love our enemies too. And so I just like cried my quiet tears and knew no matter what happened, whether I would go to military prison, I don't know if I'd look like a betrayer. I don't know what was going to happen, but between I was going to be a citizen of heaven first. And so no matter what happened that next day, I would never take a life. Like, mm. I didn't care what happened. I would give my life for an American, an Iraqi, a kid. I didn't care who. I would step in front of a bullet, but I would never, never take a life. And I feel like I always call that my desert baptism because that's the day mm. I truly became a citizen of heaven first. Like, that's when I became, that's when I knew who I was and everybody else came second. Mm. No matter what happened. Like that's when I became like God for God first, yeah. citizen of heaven first. And everybody else was a long second. And I was scared, totally scared. Like I was sweating bullets the next day when we had a roll call and had to get in those trucks. Yeah. Like, well, fear trembling for sure. But that's when I knew that I knew that like something had shifted. And that's when yeah. I first knew like who I was and who I wasn't. Wow. And I think that your courage gives other people permission, you know, to ask questions and to uh, wrestle with some of the things, same things that you wrestle with and to be, to be open about that, you know? Um, and I, I, of course, when I, I was over in Iraq, you know, with the Christian peacemaker teams and the other groups, when, I don't know how it overlaps exactly with when you were there. You were but first. You were, I was, I was kind of call you like a little like granddaddy, a little peacemaker granddaddy who was like putting your hand against the bombs <laughs> before I knew. <laughs> I've not been called a granddaddy before, but Lord have mercy. I'll take it, I guess. But, you know, so um, you, well, you, this is funny because Diane, I was talking to a group and um, I mentioned some of this stuff, you know, of 9-11. And I realized that, 
these people that I'm talking, these, these young people that I was talking to, they weren't even born yet, you know? And so uh, sometimes we, we, you know, we forget that this is a little while ago and there's a lot of folks probably listening to this that don't remember the way that 9-11 shook our country and the world. And so many people were trying to um, process their fear and anger and grief uh, and all those things. And it brought some of the worst and some of the best uh, out of us. And, um, and, and, you know, when we were over there uh, trying to stand against the war and, and everything, um, I saw so many things that um, transformed me. And part of that was the relationships that we built with Iraqi people and um, with, with victims, folks that, you know, were suffering from the bombing and the war. And, and, and uh, um, but I'll never forget when I came back, um, I kept hearing from soldiers that had stories very similar to yours. In fact, some of them told me they were passing uh, my books around in other books like Contraband, and they were scared they'd get caught because they were kind of raising questions around this. Some of them began to give me uh, their their military dog tags, you know, and then as they heard that they had given them, I got more and more of these. I had a little collection of um, these, you know, folks that had handed me these and said, I want to disarm, you know, and I want to be faithful to Christ. And I, I don't think I've told you this story, um, but I, w- I w- was invited to Liberty University to speak. Um, and I spoke and I told some of the stories from Iraq and I was a little nervous. I mean, this is, you know, Jerry Falwell's old school, you know, the, the, I knew it wasn't leaning liberal, you know, <laughs> and, and, but I'm telling these stories because they're stories about faith. They're stories about Jesus. They're stories just like you're telling about the gospel. And afterwards, one of the first people that beelined up and I could tell he was on a mission, he, you know, pushed through the crowd and he came up and he said, as you were there as a peacemaker with the bombs falling in Baghdad, I was one of the folks dropping the bombs. And then you could feel this burden almost visibly lifted off him. I mean, we hugged each other, just held each other and prayed together. And I realized, first of all, that there we can never come in with our prejudices and stereotypes. I mean, this is at Liberty and this is someone who had felt the impact from the other side of those. I had just experienced the impact of the bombs being there, but this is someone that had dropped the bombs that's living with the reality of that and went on to tell me, I know how many people we killed because we got reports on it, you know? And he's like, that, 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 that is just going on and on in my head, you know? And there's so many, you know, different, different stories like that. And I, I, I want to say, you know, to folks listening in that might be soldiers or veterans, um, get a hold of Diana, holler at us at Red Letter Christians. We'll try to like find some resources to help you become a conscientious objector and so, or, or to find a, a faithful way forward. Right. And there are folks that contact me. They're like, I'm getting, I'm going to jail right now uh, because of my decision not to fight. And there were folks that did, you know, one of them stayed with us in a simple way. Like, uh, uh, and, and there's, you know, all kinds of different stories of the repercussions of that, but every single one of them goes on to say how good it felt 
to say yes to Christ and to the convictions of their heart, no matter what the ramifications were. And that's kind of the same thing that you're saying. Yeah, there's a place for everybody. And there is something that I've loved about hearing people who do read my book is my Muslim friends feel really seen. Like um, uh, some friends from my local mosque endorsed it. The president of the local mosque felt like honored and seen. And there's my veteran friends from feel like seen. And there's people who are like, man, I didn't, I have people who've served and they don't talk much, but I feel like I know a little bit more how to talk to them and maybe how to care for them. And I feel like there's people of faith who are like, oh, so (laughs) this is a little bit more of like, why is it a little bit problematic for me to send missionaries to a country that we've been bombing for 10 years? Mm-hmm. You know, like I feel like every nobody feels like the bad guy and everybody feels like like my husband. He's like, oh, my gosh, I really want to have an Iraqi family over for dinner mm-hmm. because I feel like I know people more. Mm-hmm. And so if everybody feels like they have a little bit more, they've heard some stories and they feel like they know each other a little more. I'm like, this is what the kingdom looks like. Yeah. When we are so connected to each other's thriving, like there's a friend of mine, I'm emotional because it's so like, I feel like there's so much violence today, but the peace is where we see each other. Uh, One of my friends, Isan, is in Iraq. And I was just reading this before, but there's this thing where I get to go to his house, you know, after all these years. And we're each comparing notes because both of us were in the same area during the war and wars shift. Like Shane, you know, when you were there, And then when I was there, like things are so fast moving and having somebody be there at the same time and be like, do you remember this? Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing, a newspaper can't even catch it. Like either you were there and we remember the same things. And we stayed up late at night after our, you know, we had dinner together and his kids went to bed and I got to hold his kids and Mm -hmm. drink tea together. And we compared some, some notes, you know, cause I'm like, did that really happen? And he's like, yes. You know, and there's this part where I was like, man, Isan and I like our like we knew war, but our kids will know peace. Come on. And I'm like, man, you know, like our country is all about the culture wars and the physical wars like Mm. here and there. But like we are going to know peace because we're working for it. Come on. My kids are going to know peace. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm, that's, that's what was fires in my bones. That's what like Vincent Hardy knew. Like they're just, we're, we're taking the same baton and we're just working for it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Stories. And we're going to, we're going to keep talking about that. Cause the, the, you know, your whole book is, is, is about the transition from soldier to peacemaker and that's the work you're doing now. But I also asked you if you'd, uh, do a little excerpt, you know, read us a little something because you're not just a, it's not just a powerful story, but you're a great writer. And so um, I think you've got a little section that you're, you're going to read, but I want to say this too, for folks listening on Facebook or here on zoom, you can put your questions uh, or comments in the chat. And we're looking at those already see one from Pat on Facebook. This is beautiful. Um, uh, Diana, she says, uh, thanks for, the book, I love these words from it. These are your words. You can't bring peace on earth 
when you use weapons of war. You can't build up God's kingdom of love, mercy, forgiveness, and self-sacrifice using the tools of death, deception, and destruction. That's what love looks like. It's refusing to be enemies. So that's uh, a little quote from Pat from your book on uh, Facebook. And you're going to read us a little excerpt, I think. Uh, to- well, I... I don't know which one I want to read, so you're going to have to buy me a little time because now I'm in between which story I want to read. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I, I think um, as, you know, as I'm thinking about the, the work of peacemaking and the work that you're doing now and, you know, Red Letter Christians is a part of that, um, I kind of am reminded of the words of Gandhi, you know, known for his, you know, being such a champion of nonviolence. But this is one of the things that Gandhi said. It's it's not always his most famous quote, but he said, uh, if I have to choose between a soldier and a coward, then I'll choose a soldier any day. Is a little bit of a paraphrase because he said, uh, because the passion that a soldier has can be channeled into love and nonviolence but you can't do much with a coward. So, you know, here's Gandhi saying, you know, uh, that there's something about that willingness to die that uh, so many soldiers have that are risking their lives. And so there's just sort of a, something to be said for that courage and passion and what it can look like to, to dedicate all that to the cause of peace, as we see in, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, who were both killed, uh, you know, uh, murdered, and it cost them their lives. Um, but uh, I'm buying you a little time there. Uh, you are. Uh, well, <laughs> but here's the thing. <laughs> Many sermons. Which one should I read? Well, here's oh, You want to get, I, you can give me a, uh, I can, I can uh, help you choose. You're going to give us like multiple choice here? Yes. Okay. So there's the old Om Hassan, the Iraqi woman. And then there is Dr. Sabah, the Iraqi professor, who I accidentally knocked on his door. And then I had to tell him that the only reason I know about Iraq was because I was a soldier. Yeah. And it was part of destroying his country. Um. Okay, you get to tell us in the Zoom, which one are we going for? Tell us, Larry or Carol or someone on the Zoom machine here, Joe, Paul. And then the rest of you, you'll have to get the book so you can read all the other stories. There's so many powerful stories. Uh, so I'm sorry. Or we could do questions because we do have like 15 minutes left. Do you want an excerpt? Yeah, or- read this why don't you read the second one and the, the and and then we'll go into some questions. Which one you read it for me, Shane? Which one are which one are we picking? Om Hassan or Om Hassan? That's that's what folks said in chat. So in the thing. So yep. She's really cool. Okay. All right. I'm gonna try to look at you while read the book. So I'm walking through a village, so I don't have to read, like, too much for you guys. But I'm walking through a village, and hold on. I don't want to have to read too much for you guys. 
All right. I got caught in a mid-afternoon lull when almost everything breathing hid from the punishing sun and napped. The street was deserted. For safety, soldiers always walk in pairs. But this afternoon, I didn't have the customary battle buddy beside me. Woman to woman, we stared at one another. From within the darkness behind her, I saw a shadow move. Her fingers motioning me to come into her house. I recognized the universal gesture in a flash. My feet instantly became cemented to the hot sand beneath me. Shock stopped me in my tracks. Why was she inviting a lone American soldier to go behind the walls of her home? I didn't know what to do. I remembered the three soldiers who had been kidnapped and whose body parts were found strewn across the desert a week later in the Sunni Triangle. I knew Iraq was full of civilians and enemies. This was a guerrilla war. Not knowing who was who had become part of the daily grating fear inside my belly. Should I trust this woman? She could be bait, luring me into an attack where I'd be taken by the enemy, hiding behind her door, and never heard from again. I wasn't all that afraid of dying, but I was terrified of being raped and tortured. I knew the sorts of things people could do to make you wish for death. And as a woman, I had more to lose than my male soldiers, and I knew it. Looking around, I realized I had wandered away from the safety of my fellow soldiers and was all alone. Alarm bells of danger started to roar in my ears. My eyes started to sting with tears held back. I felt the pressure building inside me. I could decide to protect myself or to take a risk and move toward this woman instead of away. I didn't know why she was inviting a soldier who had invaded her country and wore a gun into her home, but she was. In a split second, I knew I could either stick to the script or leave the safety of what I knew and plow into the rapids of the unknown without a life jacket? Was I going to trust someone I didn't already know was trustworthy? Or was I going to play it safe? My heart pounded. I didn't know whether she was safe. I didn't know whether she was a suicide bomber wrapped up in a grandmotherly smile, or whether my name would be read the following morning at roll call from the list of soldiers killed. But even though everything in my training and survival instincts screamed at me to walk away and fast, something undeniable drew me toward her. Something bigger was challenging my wartime survival instincts. Like a burning bush I couldn't ignore, her eyes locked on mine, and I knew I had a choice to make. To walk away or to accept the fireworks in my chest that were screaming at me not to miss this, to pay attention even if I didn't understand it. Inhaling hard, I felt my heart pump as if I were standing on the edge of the high dive. Then I suddenly felt a flash of hope like summer lightning streaking across the night sky. Her invitation to choose hope over fear was the oxygen mask I didn't know I needed. The choice to put it on was mine alone, and I wasn't sure if I could do it. Her invitation dared me to be human in the middle of an inhumane war. She dared me to believe in the stuff that my little girl self had thought was possible. Goodness, in the middle of the most violent darkness. Her twinkling eyes dared me to believe that I had something extravagant to give instead of something priceless to protect. I could dare to love, even in the middle of a war, or I could settle for staying alive. 
practitioners of dangerous hope are found in the most unlikely places. Mm. Iraqis offering friendship to Americans, children grabbing hands of soldiers, believing they will hold them instead of harm them. A parent tying a bow into a child's hair, knowing a bomb or a bullet may go off that same day and prayers of gratitude in the pre-dawn morning of a gritty war. These are dangerous ways to hope in unlikely places. This dangerous hope propelled me into this woman's home, and I've never been the same. Today, 17 years later, I know that this woman changed my life forever. She interrupted my well-worn path of self-protection with an invitation of unearned trust. Despite my uniform announcing my status as an invader into her country, the nine millimeter Beretta strap weapon strapped to my hip and the battle rattle hanging off of me. She saw me. She saw a little girl far away from home. No amount of military might or American superpower could disguise my humanity from her. Mm. That day, I didn't stare down at the sand and keep walking. I walked straight through her door into the unknown. She laughed and wrapped her arms around me as she pulled me through the darkened hallway in the light of her living room, lined with bright red rugs dotted with daughters, grandchildren, and embroidered cushions. I would drink tea on her family's rug, surrounded by her daughters and grandchildren throughout my deployment. Her family would remind me of mine, and I would learn to laugh even when fear was eating away at my humanity. Mm. Ooh. Thank you. Just a little Thanks bit. Reading. Little, little, get, get everybody excited to, to get it. So, I mean, the hour flew by. I got a, a list of questions I didn't get to ask you, and there's like more coming in, but we do have just a few minutes. And thank you for that reading. And by the way, everybody, um, get the book, Waging Peace. And uh, I know some folks are listening. This will come out as a podcast and stuff, too. So we've been talking with Diana Ostrike uh, and her book is Waging Peace. So it's um, been a great hour. So there's a couple of questions, Diana. Um, One of them is there's a couple that are related sort of, um, you know, a lot of folks right now are thinking about Ukraine and what are solutions to what feels like such a paralyzing situation and it's hard to know what to do i just posted a video of ethan hawk you know uh yesterday saying that we need the pope to lead a delegation and and, (laughs) so there's people throwing out ideas of what courage and peacemaking looks like but what do you think um you know uh or, or just what are some reflections on what it means to be a peacemaker in the middle of another war right now well, I think we do need action. And one of the things, I mean, there's all the philosoph- philosophical parts and um, and there's like the actionable things. And I have a website that calls it the Waging Priest Project is how you can take action in your neighborhood with your people, whether it's a book club or a kindergarten class, like we need to take action. Um But one thing that I want to leave you with, because this always really gives me hope, is there is there was a study done a couple years ago by a professor at Harvard. Her name is Professor Chenoweth, and she really believed in violence. And she's like, this is the only way that things work. And so they studied all the violent 
uh, social changes from like 1900 to 2006. Mm. And what she found was that nonviolent movements are twice as successful as violent ones. Boom. So what is super hopeful to me is she found that all you need to make a change is three and a half percent of the population to show up to win, to make a change. So whenever I get a little bit like, what are we going to do? And it's hopeless. Like we cannot get 51%. We can't get anyone to agree on ice cream. Like we cannot do anything around here. (laughs) Um, All we need is three and a half percent to make a change. Mm. That is really doable. And then I was like, because I'm a little sciencey, I'm a nurse also. So I'm like, okay, well, professor, what does that really mean? Give me the stats. So they said, uh, to what does it mean to have someone join a movement? So they, they're like, how they did it was you have to have someone physically show up to something in public. That's just like a march or something off the couch. So three and a half percent in your neighborhood, three and a half percent in your city, that is very doable. Everybody else can like sit and whine and hashtag and whine on Facebook. But if, if we could get three and a half percent of the people in our city to march for Ukraine, Ethan Hawke's idea could work, judging by the study from Harvard. If we could get a group of people to say, we're done with the violence in Ukraine and make a mass movement march. Yeah, you know? and, and folks have also mentioned that if Christians refuse to be a part of the invasion in Ukraine and the, the Christian church had, you know, had the courage to denounce it in leadership, uh, it would be very unlikely that this could be going forward. And, and the, the church has been very complicit, as, as is the case in a lot of wars. Right? Right? And there are different ways that you can make a living. And you can just say, I, there are a few jobs that, you know what? I'm just not going to be part of because there are some ethical issues there with violence. Yeah, great. Okay, so just one or two more here. Uh, first, uh, Paul asked what happened to baby Mohammed. And so I don't know that everybody will know what that means, but tell Paul. Yes, others thank that you, read Paul. Thank you, Paul, for reading the book. And I want to show you a little picture of baby Mohammed um, for Paul. So I'm not sure this is baby Muhammad. Not Mm. sure if that one made in the book. So I was hoping to go back and see how baby Muhammad is doing a little update because he should be about 17 about now. Um, But with uh, COVID, the south of Iraq, when I went back, I thought I would be able to see him and check on the whole village. And my friend Asan is also from the south. So we he had planned to take me around and his village is also down there. Um, but there was like there's been some civil unrest um, in the south. And so we have not been able to go back and I have not been able to hear anything. But mostly this is Om Hassan. And I feel like of all the people on the planet that I would like to thank um, that I am a good mom today and I am whole and happy and alive. I want to thank her. And I'm really worried that she is not around. Mm -hmm. I hope baby Muhammad is around, but I really hope she is around. So that is one thing that I'm really praying that I will be able to go back 
mm-hmm. and check. Um, but the civil unrest in the South is really bad. And that is also a fallout of the war of when the country got destabilized. They are still waiting to have a free and fair election. And it is still not happening. And my friend, um, Dr. Sabah, he is still waiting to go back. And he's where I kind of get my news on how the country is. And he went back a couple of years ago. He still has land and family there. And he said it is really tough. Mm. Um, it is not the country is not doing well, despite uh, the intervention. Yeah. Um, but I am praying for baby Muhammad. Like, I really hope that all those kids from these pictures like I am praying that their future, you know, that my kids and their that those kids that their futures are bright, and I'm working for them. Wow! Well, it's been a been a gift to have this hour together, and I I obviously get to keep talking with Diana because we're very good friends and coworkers, co laborers in the holy work of Red Letter Christians, but. Um, I want to make sure that folks know how to follow you, Diana. So, and you know, if folks want to invite you to come speak or do peacemaker trainings in their, their church or community, uh, tell us how people can follow you and reach you. Yeah. Instagram is just my name. Um, I don't know if you can throw that down there, Shane, Yeah, I got but you. my website is also my name. It's a tricky name. God love those married names. Um, but um, Instagram is a good way, but also www.dianaostrike.com. Um, but we, I, de- I come to where you're at. Um, we do workshops. Um, I also do them with people. But now is the time. I really believe that um, lots of good is happening. And sometimes I think the more that we can grab a few people and do things together, we put things into motion. And I honestly believe that uh, more good is happening than we know, because when we put actions together, good things are happening. I don't think that if we read the news, we get, it's easy to get a little uh, dejected, but let me tell you, I thought my life was really uh, the darkest hours were in middle of the war. And that is like the place that God really showed me like who, who I get to be and what we get to do together. And so I am so hopeful and just seeing your faces on here. I want to tell you that there are kids who are watching our country today and they need you to show up for them and, and tell them like who we're going to be together. And what is worthwhile? Because if you feel a little dejected, let me tell you, there are some kids who are like, what is going on? (laughs) And so I have met so many adults in your age group who are doing great things. And I just want you to know, kids are really looking to you and they are really excited when they see adults giving them any type of attention or doing anything positive. So just know, uh, good things are happening and good things are happening good things are happening shane's doing some awesome stuff the more we all get to do together the more good things we see and i am really really hopeful that as many divides as there are is the more invitations people want right now like whenever people get down you say anything you invite them they're like thank you so uh people are ready to do some good together so thank you so much for reading my book and um yeah 
Give it to Ladies and gentlemen, Diana Ostrike, the book is Waging Peace. And you can also find her regularly uh, at Red Letter Christian. Yes. Uh, and so as we as we go out now, uh, I just want to invite you um, when you do support Red Letter Christians, it allows us to do more stuff like this. We'll always try to do it for free. So money's never an obstacle to joining any of our events. But um, if you can give, it just helps us do more of this and to support people like Diana. So thank you. You're a gift, sister. Love you. Appreciate you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.